And now, from our studios in Kansas City, Sci-Fi For Me Radio is live from the bunker. All right, here we go. It is Tuesday. I was about to say it was a Wednesday, but it's not. It's Tuesday. Welcome, everyone. We are live from the bunker. Jason Hunt here in the super secret underground bunker at World Headquarters. The phone number, if you want to be part of the program, Pennsylvania 65000. Otherwise, you can leave a comment. They are active and live on YouTube and Twitch and Facebook. If you're not live with us, you can still leave a comment. And, of course, the email is always open, live from the bunker at sci fi for mecom If you prefer to get your shows as podcasts, we're on a lot of different ones. We call it Sci-Fi For Me Radio. You can find us on iHeart, Pocket Cast, Spotify, Amazon, Apple, Double Twist, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Listen Notes. That's a new one we just discovered here a few days ago. Well, that was very abrupt. Thank you, house band, cutting me off like that. We're on all the social media as well, and we do encourage you to sign up for our newsletter so you get uh, the most when we can announce things, because you never know. Tomorrow, we could be completely discombobulated and deplatformed and and unpersoned, and you never know what's going to happen. Speaking of which, tomorrow is open mic we're going to try this. We're going to see what we can do with that tomorrow because it's my birthday, so I'm just going to open it up and let all of you talk. Tonight, we've got a brand new Salacious Crumbs with Star Wars news. And speaking of Star Wars, there is a new... Oh, Mazerus says he found himself unsubbed today and has corrected it. So if you find yourself... Uh, you might want to check your your subscriptions... And make sure you're still subscribed to our channel because apparently people are getting kicked off. Thank you, Mazerus, for letting me know about that. Speaking of Star Wars, we've got a, a new a new universe that's starting. And it is called Star Quest. It's conceived by John C. Wright. He is not our guest. Our guest is contributing to the StarQuest universe. Richard Pellinelli joins us uh, today. Hello, sir. How are you, sir? Very good, Jason. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, you guys kind of got sloppy seconds today with me instead of John, but we'll, <laughs> we'll see what we can do. Well, you know, I mean, you're, you're first out of the gate with the, with the first book yeah. that's in this series, so it's only appropriate we talk to you first because you're, you're setting the tone, whether, whether that's intentional or not. You get to be the one to to create the first impression on this. I know John's got what three books yeah. that are all supposed to be coming out at the same time. So let's let's look through this a little bit. The new book is called Galen's Way, and mm-hmm. it is the first in a series of books. And this this setup kind of feels a little bit like some of those authors in the past who have said, you know what, here's the sandbox, go play. It, it, it feels yeah. like it's kind of a rather loose licensing uh, uh, scenario here. So, so how, how does all this play out? Well, it, uh, John set that up that way on purpose. Um, when he originally came up with the idea for StarQuest, uh, he wanted to create this, this vast universe and he wanted other authors to step in and, and, and like you said, join in and, and he'll give you a little section of the sandbox you can go play in and then see what you come up with. Now, obviously, he, uh, he has really set this universe up. Um, I, if I had been thinking, I would have brought the binder over. The notes he sent me were 43 pages in length, <laughs> just, just as the background, you know, so that way you would you know what you were writing. Uh, what he is, what he has set up is that uh, the human race, all of humanity, has been moved from the Milky Way to the Andromeda Galaxy, and this this begins millions of years in our future. By the time we get into what he calls the first age, and there's twelve ages in Star Quest, 
uh, we, the human race has forgotten their roots. They don't they don't remember that they came from Earth. There are some legends of an Earth Eden type thing, but that's pretty much you know they, it, it's considered a myth, like some of the myths that we we look at today. Right. So he's got he's got all these ages set. They they stretch for tens, if not hundreds of thousands of years. He's got all these alien races that are out there. Uh, the the human race isn't even discovered in Andromeda until about the fifth age, I think. Yeah, fifth age, because I'm I'm writing in fourth, and so it's just the human race right now thinking we're all alone in the galaxy still. So he's got all this set up, and he has opened it up to people like me. Uh, Josh Young is is uh, he's got a little corner of the seventh age sandbox set aside. John's going to focus, from what I understand, on the twelfth. Okay. Um, so. Yeah, yeah, it's it's open. If you want to come in, and it, you can't. It's not like you would come in and say, "Okay, well, Richard's got four, Jason's got seven, Johnson twelve, so I got to go find one of the other ages." You can do that, mm-hmm. or after you've read some of what I've done and what John's done, you can go, "Hey, I've got an idea that'll work in fourth, or I've got an idea work in twelve. You know, obviously, you got to submit what you're going to do to John for him to approve. And make sure you're not going to screw up something that's being set up later. Sure. But, uh, but yeah, you, he he wants more people to be involved in this and create this this vast multi-author epic saga that's going to go on for, for a very long time, we hope. Now, does that include uh, short story anthologies or other media? Oh or is it just <laughs> going to be just the just prose fiction? I think right now it's... Uh, I, you know, I don't want to talk for John here, but as far as my understanding is, we're just doing prose fiction. But if somebody comes up with an anthology idea, submit it to John and and see what he says. Okay. You know, um, I, I I don't see where we should, you know, limit ourselves. I mean, you, you might even come up with game ideas or comic ideas. You know, but you obviously you got to go through John first because sure. this is his sandbox. But I can see this thing developing out and in, in, into many different uh, various media. Now, the the oper- it strikes me here that the opportunity is such that new writers could probably jump in on this. Is there any kind yeah. of an intention as far as discovering new talent, or we want to have people that have published one or two books already, that got some experience? What's the, what's the entry level for it? Well, I, I would imagine... It would be open to anybody as long as they have a good idea that will work within what John set up. Okay. The the thing you got to be aware of, um, you you've uh, you're going to have to be ready to probably publish it yourself uh, because John's stuff he's publishing his through his own setup. All of my stuff is going to be going through. Uh, uh, Tuscany Bay Books, which is mine. You can see the little, well, right. where's the camera at? <laughs> anyway, I can't get this thing to work. Um, so I, jo- I'm not sure where Josh is going with his, but uh, you've got to be able to get the book published. I don't know if how it would work out if, we, if you were to write something and then try to go find a publisher. But that might be something that John or, or something like I could help you do. Yeah, uh, I've helped other people do their own uh, publishing, so we give it a shot. Now you've been doing fiction since 2013, I, I, I think, since you retired from journalism. Is that right? I, I, I started writing in 2013. My first, well, I was actually, I started traditionally published in 2015. I didn't go indie until 2017. Okay. But yeah, I, I've been, I, right after I, I quit the newspaper field in 2013, I, I started back up to fiction writing. How, how different is it? between working in a newspaper and writing fiction i mean was that was that a huge was that a huge leap or because i know it's a different kind of content it's a different kind of material but i imagine you know the amount of research and stuff for the world building and all of that you're probably bringing some of those journalism skills into all of that i would yeah yeah because with journalism you you you've got the basics you're trying to say what happened who it happened to where it happened when it happened and why that's basically what you're doing in a fiction book. You, you, but in, in the difference is in journalism, you're reporting on actual events that really happened in reality. Right. With fiction, you're making it up as you go, but you still have to, 
make it believable and you still have to make sure you're not contradicting yourself in chapter 12 you know with what you've just written in chapter 14 so it is different um the approach is different because in in newspaper writing you go out you cover the event you come back and you've got to generate x amount of words and you have to do it before x amount you know the certain time so it could be processed and, and printed fiction writing you know you you've got a little leeway if you if you're not just you're not having a good day you you don't have to get those done today you can do it tomorrow but it's also you want to get it done as quickly as you can so that you can work you know go to work on the next project get this one published so it yeah there's there's difference they're different and yet they are the same in, in many ways. Yeah. You know, it's funny because, you know, looking at some of today's headlines, you, you almost have to look at it twice and think, okay, well, is this, is this real? Is this a real thing that's happening here? Is this Babylon B or is this the onion? Mm -hmm. Because, you know, it's <laughs> like truth is stranger than fiction at, the, at, at this point uh, with some of this stuff. Yeah, I've noticed a few of the Babylon Bee headlines from a couple of years ago are starting to show up in the New York Times, and you're like, oh, boy. Oh, I tell you, that, well, and, and that brings up a good point, because, you know, a lot of people keep talking about, you know, the death of newspapers and the, the how journalism has been compromised, and and there's not as much objectivity, there's too much bias. We've got, you know, the various different books that Bernie Goldberg has talked has written you got Barry Weiss. You've got uh, now, um, uh, what's his name? Donald McNeil, I think, was the latest. Mm -hmm. The latest one yeah. to get let go from from New York Times. Over, you know, little things. It, is is journalism dead? Essentially, the the ideal journalism where we report and here are the facts and you go make up your own mind. Is that gone? Do you think? I, th I think that concept is gone. And, and I, I saw it happening back in even the late 90s uh, and the early, the early 2000 decade. Um, and I'm not sure at what point it happened. And it, it seems like old school journalism is you go out and you do the basics. You know, you report what happened, why it happened. Uh, if you're going to if you need to investigate, you you ask multiple sources and you get your information together and rock solid before you go to print. Right. Today's journalism to me, and, and I've been out of the field for now eight years, it's not journalism, it's almost a combination of activism, activism almost said activism for some reason, uh, <laughs> active, activism and um, opinion. It's, it's no longer, just the facts it's i don't like something or I, this is what i think about something so i'm going to go write the story to fit what i've already decided before i even go out and investigate it right and that to me is not that's not what journalism is it should never have come to this but when you look at you know you look at what's going on that's kind of what you got is that a cultural thing, do you think? Because I look Could at be. I look at comic books, I look at what's going on in video games. You know, you've got the whole comic scape movement now. You have mm -hmm. uh, you have what happened with the Hugos, with the sad puppies, and all of that coming out. And and it feels like with traditional publishing venues, you know, DC Comics or Tor or 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 any of those, you know, Random House, Simon and Schuster, you have almost what feels like a divide now between certain types of writers with particular goals. And you talk about, you know, the agenda-driven journalism. It almost yeah. feels like the publishing industry is kind of divided into those camps as well. Yeah. And that yeah. kind of, that I would imagine that affects how you get published, where you get published, what kind of stories that you can tell. Have you had any difficulties with anything that you've tried to publish and somebody comes comes up to you and kind of gives you some pushback on it? No, because for me, like I said, I started off traditional uh, with my mystery thriller series. And it was right about the beginning of 2017 when I decided I'd already, after two years, I'd had enough of traditional. But it was, it was basically, I was doing all the work 
and paying the publisher and my agent 90% of what the book was making. And I'm looking at this going, why am I doing this? Um, I can, I can publish my own. I'm kind of a lone wolf. Um, I like the, the, I like the challenge of, of trying to do it myself anyway. So for me, indie publishing was very appealing and that's why I made the jump. So I don't really have that much contact anymore with trying to get something traditionally published. Yeah. Um, I, I have recently had an issue with someone who has a publishing house that I, I submitted work to and gotten printed. Um, they've kind of gotten into this politics as everything. And we've kind of parted ways because to me that I can't do that. I, I don't, I don't write to make political statements or points. I write my stories to entertain. And I, I wish we could go back to that across the board. Yeah. If you're going to write fiction, if you're going to write a comic book, if you're going to do a game, if you're going to do a film or a TV series, your first goal should be, is it entertaining? And not, am I going to score some woke points or am I going to make a political statement here? You know, you want to do that, go into politics. Yeah. But let's get back to entertaining reading and writing and and books and movies. Let's get back to that and get away from what we're, we're into now. Now, do you ever get it, get a notion in your head to write a story specifically to trigger that crowd to get a, re, to get a rise out of them? Have you, have you ever just, just entertain the notion. I don't, I don't think you'd act on it. You don't strike me as the type, but <laughs> I, uh, Okay, I'm going to disappoint you. I did. Um, <laughs> and I made the point, And then after the point was made and the message received, I pulled it. So you can't get it anymore. Yeah. But yeah, there and it, it was it was basically I took um, Dickens, A Christmas Carol, and did a parody of it and put in the people that needed to get the point. And <laughs> I actually sent them copies of the book and left it out for, I think it was out for about three or four months. And once the message was received, it's like, okay. And I pulled it. So yeah, yeah I have, I have, uh, sometimes you have to use a sledgehammer to get the point across. And sometimes you don't, that was one time when I, I had to, but, um, it, that, that was written specifically for a, a certain small segment of people. And I, I don't, that I didn't leave it out cause I don't want that I don't want that reputation of being the type of person who makes political um, fiction. Right. A thing. So now along those lines, it's not, this isn't fiction, but it is your response to what's going on with uh, Tony Weisskopf with the, you know, with the Jason Sanford article and essentially what looks to be a hit piece. And mm -hmm. as it's coming out, there are people who are now talking about the fact that you have people on the Worldcon committee, people on the Discon committee, people even over at the International Costumers Guild that are all intertwined and, and you know, serving on each other's boards. And uh, I think it was Jason Roche, who was the, the chairman of Worldcon in San Diego, 76, mm -hmm. um, who is friends with Jason Sanford. And apparently Sanford had submitted a book to Bayon and it had gotten rejected. That's my understanding. And then all of this comes out. So yeah. it this this feels like it's a calculated thing against both Tony and Bayon, at least yeah. to me. Yeah, and, and to, to address the point, because I know a certain segment of people are going to hear what you just said and they're going to start yelling. Um, it is a rumor that Jason... Rum yes, it's allegedly. Okay, it's yeah. alleged he did. Uh, Bain has not said a word whether he did or not. Uh, Sanford says he did not submit a book, and which was not my question to him. I got one question into him and he blocked me. So that that kind of tells me a lot about what I need to know about Jason. Yeah. And 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 what what I'm basing my opinion on this whole mess on. Um, I asked him, did you submit anything to Bain that was rejected? And he just said I didn't submit a book. Okay. What about there's other things out there. So, you know, is that his true motive for doing it? I don't know. I don't live in the man's head. I don't talk to him. Uh, obviously, he's blocking me wherever he goes. So yeah. I'm not going to ever talk to this guy. Um, but it does strike me as there was an ulterior motive at play. 
Um, because if you're going to do an Im investigative report, as mm -hmm. he puts it, you, you don't do a lot of the things that he did. You, you contact the subject of your story and you present them with what you, what you have found and you get their comment. Even if, it, even if they say, I'm not going to comment on this, you get that and you put it in your story. Right. You show you gave them an opportunity to present their side. Yeah, it's your due it, diligence for, for making sure that you're covered all the way around. Right. Yeah. And I think maybe you, you may have brought this up. Um, he kind of paints a, he paints the whole forum at Bain with this broad brush of, Okay, I found a couple of problematic posts in a politics sub-thread on yeah. a forum. Well, you know, you're going to find that in a politics thread no matter what forum you go to. But he, he tends to say, because I found one or two posts of questionable content in one little area, then the whole forum is full of racists and all, this, all these bad people. You can't do that. You know, if you're gonna if you're gonna make that broad statement, you got to show more examples outside of the politics threat. Right. It did really um, feel like he was taking a bunch of stuff out of context, especially given yeah. how the how everybody is reacting to this. Because Larry Korea has come out against it, mm -hmm. um, uh, uh, Eric Flint, uh, David Weber. I mean, these, these are people who are not all on the same side politically, right. but they've all worked with Bayon. They've all looked at it and they said, "No, we know Tony." There is no way that any of this is how yeah. Sanford has has portrayed it. Yeah, I mean it's it's and my my point. And I know I'm getting attacked because they think I'm trying to get the man fired. I don't want him fired. Yeah. I don't do the cancel culture thing. I hate that. I think you should be able to you know speak your mind and keep your job. Unless now, if you go out and kill somebody, okay, well maybe you should lose your job and go to prison. <laughs> But if you're speaking your mind, what you truly believe, by all means, please do so and leave the leave the person alone so they make a living. So, no, I don't want the man fired. I want to get that out. Yeah, I don't I've never published with Bain. I don't know if I would ever submit anything to Bain because I don't know if I match their what they you know, what they publish. Uh, I might in the future. I don't know. I've never really thought about it. So I don't really have a dog in the hunt. Other than from a journalistic standpoint, I found what he did to be reprehensible and and a stain on journalism. And he works for a state news media association. That matters. And I have asked for his employer to come out and say, very simply, do you agree with everything he did in putting together this story? Yes or no. That's all yeah. I want to know. They won't. They won't respond. I've I've emailed the president. I've emailed all their trustees. No response. I didn't even get a response from the lawyer like uh, uh, Sam Smith got. At least at least the lawyer answered him. I'm getting <laughs> silence. Um, I just want to know: Is this what is considered acceptable journalism today? Because if it is, we're in trouble yeah. as a as an industry. If this is what we're going to accept as journalistic practice. Well, and and to see some of the other complaints about journalism in general, it, se it seems like you know we're on that path anyway, <clears throat> just because, you know, you see what the complaints about The New York Times, you see the complaints about uh, some of the other publications, you know, uh, Washington Post and and um, USA Today, all, all of these these, you know, Forbes where there is a particular mindset, there's a particular perspective and a particular point of view. And if you don't toe the line and we see this in Hollywood, you know, just now with the Gina Carano situation being oh, the yeah, way it is. Yeah. I mean, at what point is there enough pushback that we put, that we put this down finally and say, okay, enough is enough. Mm -hmm. What do you think is our breaking point? Yeah. I mean, if, if you can cancel Dr. Seuss, I mean, nobody's safe. Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I, I I woke up and the first thing I saw when I, I flipped on the uh, the internet and got my news feed up was Dr. Seuss canceled. I'm like, yeah, okay. Yep. That's it. <laughs> the end of civilization. I'm going back to know. bed. <laughs> <laughs> now we do, we do have a, uh, a question in the chat. What age does the fourth age refer to? So let me go back and put this up here. So Galen's yeah. way, the fourth age out of 12 
Yes. And but, you you were on uh, Critical Blast the other day talking mm-hmm. about the genesis of this, and you told a story about John Wright coming out of a Star Wars movie. Yes. Okay. I I I, I, I can tell this really quickly. Yeah. Um, sure. I had I had both John and Jaji on my podcast two years ago, back to back weeks, and and Jaji was telling me they had just gone to see The Force Awakens. And John walks out of the theater with about the same reaction I had when I first saw the movie. It was, what the hell have they done to Star Wars? So he he's complaining about it on the drive home. Kids are in the backseat, and they're like, okay, Dad, what would you have done better? And he proceeds to start uh, telling them exactly how he would have picked up the Star Wars saga after the, the last movie in 87. Jaji grabs a pen and paper, and she starts jotting down notes. They get home after about an hour and John takes the notes and expands on it. And it has grown to become StarQuest. And uh, as I mentioned before, it's, it's the human race has been transplanted to the Andromeda galaxy uh, ahead of a dark force that has come in and has basically turned out all the lights. All the stars are dead in the Milky Way now. Now, when uh, you say, when you say trans, uh, uh, transplanted, some yes. other agency has Another, moved them? Uh, uh, an alien species, I, I believe John calls them the preservers, had uh, swooped in, gathered up everybody, and got them out. Um, now, that's a concept from Star Trek. A little bit, yeah. It, okay. it reminds me, on a, on a much grander scale, where right. the preservers in Star Trek just kind of picked here and there. This species just came in and grabbed everybody and got them out before this dark force could come in. Gotcha. Uh, the, the ages actually refer to a starting point. Um, there's going to be millions of years between the transplant and when the first age of StarQuest starts. Um, each age is about a thousand years in length, but they don't run like the, you know, first age ends here. Well, the next day, the second age starts. There's a, there's a gap between ages of tens of thousands of years, hundreds of thousands of years. So that by the time you get from the first age to the 12th age, we're talking millions of years on top of the millions of years since mankind has left uh, the Milky Way. So it's a vast amount of time. Each age John set up, uh, he would put in what was going on for each species that he's created in that age. And I picked the fourth age because the human race still has not been discovered by all the other races in the Andromeda galaxy. They're still unaware that there are other races out in the Andromeda galaxy. So I could do what I wanted to do without screwing something up later on down the line for John. Um, as each age progresses, um, the, the different species are going to rise and fall. Um, you know, I, like I said, there's 43 pages of notes, so we can't condense it down to a couple of minutes. But each age has a lot going on in it that, that there will be plenty to write about and plenty to read about. So for the fourth age, um, I'm just focusing on on the human race. They call themselves hominids now, and we're gonna we're gonna kind of see how they interact with each other. There's an alliance that's in place, alliance of planetary governments. There's a group that wants to start an empire, so you're gonna have them kind of fighting throughout the the fourth age. I believe sometime in the fifth age is when the human race gets discovered and things don't go so well. So everything that I'm doing will probably not show up later, but there'll be one or two little elements that'll pop up by the 12th age. And and that's kind of the nice thing about this is the way we're working together. I'm doing some things that will set up Jason's seventh age that he can use in his. Um, I'm using stuff in fourth age that I know John's got set up for later in 12th to kind of foreshadow. So if you read mine and then you get into John's stuff, you're going to pick up a couple of things. You're going to say, oh, wait a minute. That was mentioned back then in the fourth age. Hmm. Um, I'm also, I've also got uh, two little series that are connected to fourth age, but happen pre-migration in the Milky Way. So we're going to have, by the time we get this going for a few years, you're going to have a, a saga that stretches for millions of years across two galaxies. Kind of like and they're all going to connect. Yeah, kind of, kind of like Asimov's foundation, where it just goes, yeah. you know, spreads out across, you know, yeah. millions of years. Yeah. So yeah, it, Galen's way. Uh, I've got a little blurb here. Galen Dwin is the galaxy's most feared mercenary. He's been hired to rescue a kidnapped princess from a fortress planet 
for her love, he will stand alone against the forces of a budding evil empire. Yep. On the surface, I'm getting a number of tropes, you know, vibing here, but Mm -hmm. with space opera, you almost expect that kind of thing. You almost you yeah. you have certain elements of of that kind of a story that almost have to show up. Yeah. Was was there ever a concern? Did did you guys ever discuss? Okay, how do we make it Star Wars, but completely? You know, how do we file the serial number off enough that it's not just a Star Wars pastiche? Yeah. How do yeah. How did you how do you differentiate? And make it original there. That's that's a challenge. Yeah, it is. Um, and it's funny because there's a couple of things, a couple of times in the book, you're gonna you're gonna be reading along and you're gonna pick up little. I, I don't know if you want to say uh, nods to Star Wars along the way. I mean, there's a bar scene where where Galen um, actually picks a fight with uh, a, a space trader, uh, and he sh- clearly shoots first. So it's kind of the, you know, who shot first, Han or Greedo type thing. Um, there is, there are, there are some similarities and yeah, but you know, cause it's Star Wars, not Star Wars is the approach we took. Right. You know, if you were a big fan of the first three movies and the books that came from those first three movies in the eighties and nineties, uh, Star Quest is going to be for you because this is what we're, we're kind of aiming to get back to. In, in Star Wars, and we can't because we don't own the Star Wars franchise. So I, what I did was I, I avoided using droids because that's a Star Wars thing. Right. Every you know the, some of the more popular characters in Star Wars are C three PO and R two D two. So I didn't want to have droids. Uh, so I created a um, a ship that has an AI unit called Cassandra, and she becomes she's going to have a very interesting story arc as this thing progresses. Um, so she's more than just a computer program. Um, there is the mentor type that, that Galen leans on when he, when he uh, goes to the planet and makes the rescue and finds out he's in a, in a, a lot deeper issues than, than he was reckoning for other than just going to a planet and rescuing a kidnapped princess. He's right now finding himself right in the middle of a political intrigue. He's got, Pretty much everybody in the galaxy now is going to be hunting him uh, with the intent of killing him and her now just to keep them silent. So, uh, you know, there, there's there's that to try to stay away from just the basic, you know, space wizards and the, the young guy. I don't have a young guy who suddenly discovers he's got all these fantastic powers type thing. But that was so, my next question is whether or not there's any kind of a Jedi equivalent here, any kind of mysticism or magic or supernatural elements, or is just, is this there, there, straight science fiction as opposed to space fantasy? For the most part, it's straight science fiction, but there are elements uh, with the prologue to help set up not only to introduce you as to what's going on, since this is the first book, mm-hmm. Uh, if you read the prologue, you kind of find out, okay, the human race has been moved from Milky Way to Andromeda. But it also, the main character uh, who's talked about in the prologue is the main character for the pre-migration series. So you're introduced to that. There's also a a scene toward the end. Uh, So you're kind of getting into a little bit of uh, supernatural slash fantasy realm to it. And that will show up from time to time as we go on. But for the most part, it's mostly uh, science fiction. Now, you talk about keeping this in prose. Will it lend itself to other media? I mean, if somebody comes in and says, well, I've got an idea for a comic book that we could tie in and run it on Indiegogo and crowdfund it and do that. Mm -hmm. What kind of, I'm sure you, you all have discussed this since John wants to bring other people in. If there is a, a specific process for integrating new new writers into the fold, I mean, is there any kind of like an orientation class or, or anything like that? Is okay, here's what you've got to know before you ever do anything. Now go. <laughs> <laughs> well, what you'll what you'll have to do is you'll have to reach out to John. Yeah. Um, and you can reach out to me first, and I can connect you with John if if you're having trouble doing that. Um. You, reach out to him, let him know what you got in mind. And if it's a comic book, you know, I, 
we we've actually discussed what happens if uh if somebody from hollywood shows up knocks on the door and goes hey we want to make galen's way into a movie well okay you're gonna have to talk to me you're gonna have to talk to john because you know this is his baby so you were gonna have to get a hold of him let him know what you got in mind um and then he will he will send you what we call the StarQuest Bible, and you had better be ready for a college level master's <laughs> degree type course of reading right. uh, with this thing. If you if you have any hope of pulling this off, um, now how, is, how did you is, how did you get involved in this? I mean, what 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 brought you well, into the group? Well, I had an idea for space opera, uh, which I normally don't write. But I had this one called The Princess and the Pirate. And I it's in the folder of all these other ideas I've got on my computer. And I was I had a podcast and I had his wife on first. I had John on second. And she Jaji was telling me about what John was doing. He had this big project uh, called StarQuest. And we were talking about it. And the more we're talking about it, I get the little bug in the back of my head going, hey, dude, you've got that little story idea. So by the time we get done with the first podcast interview, um, I pretty much was interested. And she had mentioned, you know, that he he was open to having other people get into it. So I'm like, okay, can you send me what he's got together? Let me see if I can make this work. And then, you know, I'll, I'll put it together and, and send it to you and you can let me know. And then I had him on the next week. And by the time we got done talking about it, I was like, okay, I'm doing this because this is, this will work. And by that time it's like, and by, Oh, by the way, I've got these other two story ideas that will work as before mankind gets, you know, transplanted. Mm -hmm. So now I can do three series in one universe and, you know, start, I'm actually going to start next year. I'll probably be doing strictly star quest stories. So, you know, why wouldn't I jump all over that? And so I, I put uh, Galen's way together and I sent it in to John and Jaji and they looked it over and uh, they gave it the seal of approval. Now I would imagine that there are other authors out there who are, are thinking along similar lines because when I, Oh, this was probably, I don't know, 15 ish years ago. I had this idea of doing a story that tells the actual backstory between Obi-Wan and Anakin Skywalker because you you hear what Obi-Wan says in the first Star Wars movie, and it doesn't quite track with what we got in the prequels. And I'm sitting here thinking to myself, you know, what if you you file all, you know you you do your own version? And like you say, there's there are no droids in this one, but how do you how do you do this and tell that actual story where you have, you know, this skilled warrior, and he's a leader, and and he finds himself, you know, imbued with this power that he doesn't quite understand, and you've got the mentor mm -hmm. that says, okay, I'm going to teach him, and it goes horribly, horribly wrong. You don't start with that guy being a kid, and so that was my starting point, and I think, you know, I could do something like that, but some something like this, I would expect that there are other authors sitting there going, I could write a Star Wars story, Mm -hmm. And this feels like it's tailor-made for those folks who want to do a Star Wars type of book without yeah. having to deal with the Lucasfilm story group or, or any of that mess because, yeah. you know, that's just, you know. Yeah, Star, uh, Star Quest is set up for you. If you've got a Star Wars type story, um, you can you can get in touch with John, get the get the information that he's got put together. I mean, he's got the entire Andromeda galaxy mapped out on who's where, <laughs> what the planets are. You know, you, you have some freedom to create some new planets, which I do in Galen's way. Um, so you have some room to maneuver. Uh, you do need to let John know what you're doing so that he can say, okay, that will work or no, wait a minute. If you do this, it's going to conflict with this down here, right. which has already been established. So, you know, here's, let's try this instead type thing. So yeah, if you're, if you're willing to, to give a little, to get a little, uh, you can get your story told in StarQuest and, and it'll, it'll fly. I mean, I, it, it, it seems to be the best way to get your Star Wars yeah, Are, have, have you do, do you have concerns that Lucasfilm would come would come no. knocking and say, uh, excuse me, this is uh, this is something you should not be doing because they did that with Battlestar Galactica. 
many, 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 many moons ago. But you know, with nineteen, you know, back in in seventy eight, when the, when Glenn Larson's original yeah. series came out, there was that back and forth. You know, you know, you stole from Star Wars or whatever. No, no, because we there's no. I mean, uh, what Star Wars is set um, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Right. Is, is, if I remember right, uh, Star Quest is set in a galaxy we can see in the night sky if we go outside and it's millions of years in the future. So yeah, star Wars back there, we're over here. Yeah. So there's, there's no, you know, the, the house of the mouse is more than welcome to try and we'll be laughing at them all the way. <laughs> so I don't know. You, you, there's, there's no, there's no, we're not trying to be star Wars. Uh, what we are trying to do is offer uh, entertainment to fans of, Star Wars the way it used to be before yeah. Kathleen Kennedy and, and Darth JJ and, and that guy who shall not be named came in and ruined it for us. Now, what, what do you think? Do you think he's ever going to get his trilogy? I'm sorry. Do you think he's ever going to get his trilogy? Um, probably not. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure anybody wants it, but you know, no, that. no. So the, the idea here with all of these different books, you know, John's doing three, you've mm-hmm. got, you've got the one, you've got the other two that you're thinking of are, are, is there a limit? I mean, you, you talk now about everything that you've got going forward could be a star quest story. Mm-hmm. Is it, you know, let's put out as many of them as we can, because star Trek did that for a while. You had, a, you had at least one novel being published by pocketbooks every month. And it got to be so much, and you're sitting there going, I, I, I can't keep up. You know, is there a concern there for maybe putting too much out at once? No, because I think we're, we're spreading it out quite a lot. I mean, uh, my next StarQuest-related book doesn't even come out till either December or January. So okay. there, there's going to be a gap for me because I've got a couple of standalone projects that I have got to do. And if I don't do them this year, I'll never get to them. So those are going to get done this year. Um, once I start getting just to where I'm just only doing StarQuest, I, I could see me doing two or three books a year at most. And I've already got four, including Galen's Way, I've got the first four fourth age books laid out. And then I have two books in each of the two uh, pre-migration series. So I've already got eight books set as far as what I want to do with them. And those will spread out over, you know, 2022, 23 and into 2024. So I don't think we're going to, I don't think it's going to get that way unless we get everybody in and all the ages are, are cranking out. But if, if we do that, there's going to be enough of a variety, I think across 12 different ages, because there's so much going on in each one. Mm-hmm. That's going to be different from what's going on in the others. Um, I I don't think we would get to that point where we we over overload the market. I hope we do though. That would be nice if we got <laughs> to that point where we were like pocket books did with Star Trek. Yeah. Um, now but, you know because we'll have a lot of money by then. We won't. You know, we can that, slow it down. That's always a good goal to have. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's a good problem to have. Right. Know? Do you have particular authors that you would like to invite in to play, or have y'all brainstormed a little bit about you know? Oh, We'd like to see, you know, Larry Correa or David Gerald or, you know, whoever in between in any of those. I, you know, my, my philosophy is um, the more the merrier. If you think you've got an idea, come, come jump into the sandbox and let's see what happens. Um, but again, I'm going to defer to John because this is his sandbox. Sure, sure. So, yeah, I don't, I don't know that John has considered specific people. Or if he's um, got a limit on what he wants to do, uh, he hasn't really talked about that. And and to be honest with you, I've been so busy trying to get this book out and get some other stuff done that I haven't really had a chance to to bring that up. Yeah. Um, but that that might be a, a a topic of discussion in the future where we start picking on you. Know, okay, we want that guy. We want that guy. Let's invite him in. I think at some point I'll probably need to reach out to John and 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 Jaji and get them both on here and and mm-hmm. expand on this because this this sounds like it could it could if it blows up this could have the potential of being a, a rather large uh, IP I guess you could say a, a franchise you know pretty much like David's Honorverse 
mm-hmm. you know, where you start bringing in other people to to write different threads and different storylines, and you 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 split off and do this, and you split off and do that, and do you see it, you know, five years from now, ten years from now? Have y'all made those projections as to where some of these stories might go, and and you're setting things up for the fifth, the sixth, seventh book? Yeah. Or have you y'all not, have y'all planned that far ahead? I I haven't. I haven't only because um, just trying to get everything done that I have had to do. You know, I I just came off of. Uh, kind of uh, writing herd on a planetary anthology series that Tuscany Bay books put out it was 11 books. It took over a year, about a year and a half to do. So having just wrapped up that, I really haven't had time to start thinking two, three years down the line where we're going to be with this, but um, I could see it happening. If enough authors come in and enough readers discover it and we do our job and give them an entertaining story um, that they're going to want more and more of. And um, yeah, it could. It could very well turn out to be this massive franchise five years from now where we're we're just sitting back and, and in awe and just amazed at, at how it's grown over the years. So right now it's in its infancy. So we're just trying right now just to get it to grow up a little. Yeah. You talk about you know, wanting to do stories that entertain. Let's let's mm-hmm. let's follow that thread here for a minute because I keep seeing this word superversive. And a, a number of authors are starting to use it a little bit more frequently now. And and it seems to have relatively the same definition across all of the places where I've seen it. For you using that how do you, how do you define superversive in terms of the kind of stories that you tell? What you know, somebody somebody gets on the elevator and say, "Oh, I'm a superversive author." What does that mean? Well, to, to me, it means it's an author who still believes in heroes that are everyday, ordinary people who are caught in extraordinary circumstances and find it within them somehow to rise to the moment when they need to rise up and uh, and say evil in this case, we'll just go with that example, when evil must be confronted and nobody else is there, this person can stand up and, and rise above. And it's um, pretty much all of my characters, my main characters that I write about are, are people who are just minding their own business. And all of a sudden they are thrown into a, a situation where most people just want to go right, right hide in the corner and not face what's going on. And they plow through all the bad things that happen. And at the end, they, they, they come through and it's not superversive. Isn't everything is all nice and happy and joy. Yeah. There's usually ends in a good ending. Mm-hmm. There's happy endings, but it doesn't always mean that everything was perfect at the end. Sure. But you you get to that end with a feeling that it's going to be okay now. You know, it's it's going to be all right. Yeah, there were some bad times. Uh yeah, uh, a character here and there may not have made it. Um but overall you you get to the end of the book, you're you're hopeful and you feel positive about those characters and maybe even feel positive a little bit about yourself and the human race as a whole. So it's Whereas sub- subversive is the complete opposite. Everybody's yeah. bad. Everybody sucks. <laughs> and I, I reject that superversive tries to rise above and to lift up. And that's the best definition for it. So I would imagine then uh, it would make it difficult maybe not impossible, but a challenge to write a story set in a post-apocalyptic dystopian mm. environment or no. you, know, you could, you could do that. Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll do a little, <laughs> I'll do a little marketing here. Go buy Maelstrom. My first, the first science fiction book I ever wrote. The earth is pretty much incinerated mm-hmm. with, with the exception of a small pocket of about a million people. 100 years after that event, the human race is dying off. They're trapped underneath the shield that's it got the planet englobed. 
They can't leave because just outside of that is this lunatic who wants to kill off the last remaining remnants of the human race. That's as post-apocalyptic as it gets. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm a superversive author. I find a way that by the time we get to the end, you are hopeful and it looks like the human race is going to make it and we're going to survive and, and things are going to be better going forward. So yeah, you can, you can write post post op yeah. and, and still be superversive. You know, superversive doesn't mean everything is good and everything happens nice. And you know, it's not, it's how the characters react to the situation and at the end, uh, do you do you think that it's a positive outlook for those characters at the end of the book? Now, did this term originate any particular place that you're aware of? Did, were you, were, you were doing this style before it had a label, or was this there was this this concept of the superversive, and you looked at it and you go, "That's the kind of story I want to write." I was actually I was doing superversive without realizing I was doing superversive. I stumbled across superversive um, probably around late 2017, early 2018. Uh, it was after Escaping Infinity came out and it got put on a list of superversive books. And I'm like, well, okay, what is this? You know, so I, <laughs> it, it where it originates, there's a there's an author who kind of puts it together and I am having a, a very bad senior moment right now and I can't remember the gentleman's name but if you if you go to my website uh, and click the superversive uh, link on the top there's a link in there that should send you to some more information on where superversive came from um, I want to say his first name is Tom and I'm I'm not going to swear to it because the the memory is not working today but um <laughs> It, it, I think it was around, it's, it's been about 10 years, maybe about 10 years ago was when he, he kind of wrote his essay on that. Um, it's, it's something that's catching on. Like you say, you're starting to see it more and more with authors. Um, and I'm, I'm happy to see that because I think we need more superversive writing and less of the uh, subversive that's, that seems to be popular with with some people today. Now, our, I'm looking at some of the names here that you've got on this uh, on this mm -hmm. list, and some of them are on the political right. Some of them are not. It, it, mm -hmm. Does that factor in to the kind of stories yeah. that get told sometimes? Not not so much that you know these are the good ones. These are the ones you should read. But in terms of the kind of outlook that an author brings to the project to make it superversive as opposed to subversive, is that a is that a mental thing? Is that a here's where I'm coming from and this is the kind of story that I want to write? Are those are those two kind of connected in any way? You think? You, you mean the the author's political viewpoint? Well, a political viewpoint, general outlook on life. Uh, I think you know, it, that I think it thing. plays it plays a role. It, it plays a role, but I don't think you can break superversive down to it can only be right leaning authors because to be honest with you, I'm probably considered more center lean, right? Right. Than absolute. Right. And, and I know authors who are way right. And I know authors who are way left and I know authors who are center lean slightly left. So I don't, I personally don't think it, it's a big factor to determine if somebody is a superversive author or not but that that falls into the realm of my opinion i right. just but but then again i don't look at somebody's politics before i decide if they they write a good story or not so oh, now that, see, that now could be you, coloring you just, my you're doing it wrong richard you gotta I you know, gotta filter everything through a gatekeeping I thing i don't I swear to God, I do not care who you voted for. <laughs> Are you telling me a story that I can get into and enjoy? Yeah. If the answer is yes, I love you. <laughs> you know, I don't care. You know, you voted for whoever. Fine. Just don't preach at me when you're telling your story, and yeah. I, you know, you're going to be fine with me. So, yeah, I, I guess I'm I'm the odd duck in the room. I don't care about politics when it comes to fiction writing. I really don't. Yeah. Well, and I'm hearing that a lot more lately, and it really does feel like, and I don't know if the if the gene if the Gina thing is the is the is the the final straw, 
but I'm starting to see a number of, of YouTube accounts, different people are coming on and they're streaming and they're talking about just talking with their neighbors or they're talking with their friends, people who are not these diehard fans who are paying attention to all of this stuff, mm-hmm. who are now aware of, well, what's going on with this? Who's, who's Gina Carano? And people are starting to look into this. And now you have this discussion in a broader sense of cancel culture and, you know, the con, you know, that whole consequence versus cancel or whatever, you know, well, it's just accountability. Well, no. Are we allowed to say anything? Are we allowed to say what we think or not? And I think it feels like that discussion is being had more in the general population now than there has been. I mean, Bill Maher's talking about it. You've got, um, you know, well, Glenn Beck and Joe Pags on that side and mm-hmm. that discussion. And people are seem to be coming down on the same side on this. It, that that kind of speech shouldn't matter. You know, you've got this yeah. guy who gets, you know, fired from his job because of a hand gesture that somebody misinterprets and they go complain about it. And I mean, that kind of thing yeah. is now getting talked about more. Maybe we're on the cusp, perhaps, of yeah. of cancel culture imploding in on itself. Can we can we hope? <laughs> I sure I sure hope so because it's the the thing I don't get is okay. Gina Carano posted something on her Instagram. You disagree with? Yeah. I kind of see what the point she was making was, and the people who got her canceled, kind of made it for her. Mm-hmm. If you stop and think about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but here's the thing. If you don't like Gina Carano, don't watch the Mandalorian. Yeah. She's not on it that often. Anyway, you see, she's going to be in it this week. Okay. Go watch something else. Your life will go on. If you do not <laughs> see that episode or see whatever she's in next. If you don't like something I wrote, don't read my book. I mean, I hate to see you go because I don't think I'm that controversial, but you know, that's your decision to make for you. If you don't like somebody that much, if you don't like an actor, uh, don't watch the show they're in. Is it fine? You can do that, but don't demand that everybody else can't see that show. Right. But is it, you're offended. Is it a mistake from a marketing standpoint as a creator to sit there? Cause you've got people like, you know, the, the, the famous quote there from Kelly Sue DeConnick, if you don't like my politics, don't buy my book, that kind of thing. And you have a number of them on Twitter basically saying, you know, if you voted a certain way, yeah. I don't want your money. Well, that I would, seems I would to be a mistake. It, I, would, I would alter it just a little bit. I, you know, you don't ever want to say, don't buy my book. That's, right. that's a dumb thing to do as, <laughs> as a creator of any medium. But, you know, if you personally don't like, any creator for something they they've said or something they voted for or whatever the case may be, then you have every right not to buy their book, not to watch their show. Mm-hmm. And I'm fine with that. That's your personal choice to do with your money, what you wish to do. That's fine. Do not try to block that creator from being on a show, from producing a book, from selling a book, whatever it is that they're doing you don't have the right to kill their means of making a living because you're mad about something they've said or done. Keep your money. You got that choice. Don't block everybody else from making that choice because now you're, you're, you're playing God. You're deciding what is right and wrong and nobody gets to do that. And people want to make a, a, a comparison between the cancel culture where you unperson someone and you destroy mm-hmm. their career and get them off social media versus uh, not buying a product. And they say, well, how is that any different? Well, it's you're you're talking with your dollars about a product, not trying to completely destroy somebody's reputation. We've yeah, got to. Go ahead. You're making the decision for yourself yeah. when you refuse to get Disney Plus like I have now, because no. I, if, they, if that's what they want to do, then they can do without my money. That's my personal decision. I am not telling you, Jason, yeah. that you shall not watch Disney Plus <laughs> because I don't have that right. And there is the difference. Yeah. You're crossing a line when you go from not spending your own money 
to blocking somebody else from spending their money or from presenting a product to be purchased. That's, mm-hmm. that's a lot. There's the line right there. And a lot of people who are in cancel culture don't see it. Yeah. We got a couple of comments in the chat. Cam one, one, three, eight says sociopaths think it is their place to speak for society in regards to accountability. Wrong. It doesn't go beyond you, the individual. Uh, and Mazur says, until excess entitlement and victim culture stops, this is going to keep perpetuating on the more extreme levels it is now. That said, it's still possible it can back off. And I think the I think the that Gina Carano getting fired is almost sort of a sort of a Barbara Streisand effect on steroids. I guess you could call it the Gina Carano effect now, where you have this now all of this attention on the cancel, what I call the cancel cult, which is, you know, essentially these, you know, emotionally constipated junior high mean girls on Twitter mm-hmm. who, who used to be on Tumblr and now they think they run the world and yeah. we're getting more attention focused on that mean girl behavior. And a lot of people are saying, why are you being like this? Yeah. So maybe there is hope. Maybe. Well, I, I always approach life with a sense of hope. And if I ever get to a point where I lose hope, you might as well just shoot me and put me in the grave and, and be done with it. Because, uh, well, we can't do that yeah, yet I, because you've got too many books to write. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Give it a couple of years, then, you know, then bump me off. Um, yeah. It's, it's, I, I just, one, one of the things I saw this morning, we talked about the Dr. Seuss getting sort of canceled. Yeah. They've, they've pulled six of his books. And uh, I, I noticed somebody um, had said, well, you know, why are you guys freaking out? It's just six books. There's still 39 more Dr. Seuss books out there to read. And I'm like, my instant reaction, and I did tweet this to him. I'll, I'm interested to see if he replies is, you know, I don't know why everybody was freaking out when the Nazis burned all those books. There was still plenty to read. Yeah. I have That's, said that, know, that we're on that path if we don't stop this. Yeah. I have said that we are currently sitting at the intersection between Animal Farm 1984, Fahrenheit 451, and Brave New World, where yeah. social media is the drug, is the is the Brave New World drug that keeps us all all pacified. But it also keeps us condi- it gets us conditioned to where we're ready to burn that book that we don't like. And you have government and you have the big brother and you have the the different social media access tiers deciding, you know, the hierarchy. You know, everybody's equal. Some are more equal than others. All of those things are coming into play. And I think these these books were not instruction manuals. (laughs) No, they weren't. They were (laughs) they were written as warnings, people. And we're not. Yeah. Yeah. Well, some of us have taken them to heart. Some of us have obviously not read them. Because, you know, you, you look at some of the, the conduct and you're like, did you, you know, did, did you not read those books? Did you not learn from history yeah. that it never ends well for the group that goes around banning people and burning books? They never end well. <laughs> and yet here we are with a group that thinks, hey, this time we're going to make it work. Yeah. They've just never done it r- the, the right way before. that's that's the thing right all right so the book now galen's way is out now what's next for you for me i am uh like i said i've got two standalone projects that i'm trying to wrap up um the the next one that'll be out probably will be sea dragon which is a novelization of the sea dragon comic book from the 1980s that i was the lead writer for it only lasted um six issues and I wrote the first two. And uh, a couple of years ago, I, I ran into the last surviving creator of the Sea Dragon comic books and told him what I had in mind. And he gave me his blessing to go ahead. So uh, it will be a little bit more detail on Sea Dragon's backstory and deal with some some questions I had with what was going on with the Sea Dragon character that I didn't get a chance to address with a much longer uh, comic book series. So that's coming out. I've got a, uh, a book called Firstborn's Curse, which is a alt history telling of the life of Cain. And uh, the premise is that the mark on Cain's forehead was not so that people would not hurt him or kill him. It was a warning against death to never come for Cain. And so we, we kind of take him all through history up until um, early 
and uh, and he he finally he finally finds what he's been looking for all these centuries. And we'll just kind of tease you with that. Interesting. All right. Well, we're looking forward to that, and uh, we hopefully will be able to get a review of Galen's Way out here uh, fairly soonish rather than laterish. Uh, and in the meantime, we'll uh, we'll reach out to John and and Jaji and see if we can get them on. And uh, then you know, when your next thing is out, we'll have you back and we'll we'll talk yeah. more. A, a word of warning about John: don't plan on talking much. <laughs> I had him on for a little over an hour, and I think I spoke fifteen words. So, well, you know, when I have when I have a guest that can mon- monopolize the time, that makes <clears> it much easier for me. I just sit here and <laughs> and make sure that the sound is right, and and we're yeah. all good. So, yeah, you you won't have that problem with John. <laughs> all right, all right, Richard Palinelli, thank you very much for being here, sir. The book Galen's Thanks. Way, the website scribe.com and uh, those links are in the the show notes in the description. So you can check that out, and uh, we will have Richard back. All right. Well, thanks for having me on. It's been fun. Yeah, thank you for being here. And thank all of you for being here with us and uh, joining in the chat. And uh, if you are not live and you're watching this you know, on replay, uh, you can leave us a comment and uh, and share your thoughts. And, of course, we have our email address live from the bunker at sci com. And coming up tonight, we do have a new Salacious Crumbs with news from the Star Wars universe. And then on Thursday, uh, we will have a brand new Ranker Pit. We'll be talking about all of the different Star Wars news and rumors and speculations. I imagine we'll probably talk about Gina again uh, because the last two went so well. So uh, who knows? We may have some people drop in and, and be guests on that. And of course, tomorrow we've got open mic here and uh, who knows how that's going to go. So join us uh, more live from the bunker tomorrow at 1 p.m. Eastern, 12 Central. And remember, in the meantime, it is your money, it's your vote, and there are four lights. This has been a presentation of Sci-Fi For Me Radio. Copyright 2021 by Flaming Dog Media, LLC. All rights reserved. No portion of this program may be retransmitted without the express written consent of Flaming Dog Media.